Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. No matter where in the world you live right now or how this COVID-19 pandemic has affected you, Chances are you're reevaluating many things in your life, especially concerning the resilience of your lifestyle in the face of changes outside of your control. And I'm right there with you. But I've been doing exactly this kind of analysis of resilience and ecological impact for clients for many years. So that's why I've put together a new resource to help people like you who want to start taking steps towards self-sufficiency right now. If you're interested in starting to produce your own food, cut costs while maintaining your health and livelihood, and reconnect with your community to increase your support network, then my new book, Homesteading for Every Home, was written just for you. This book will guide you through simple steps that you can take from any living environment to build resilience in your life and community by taking stock of what you already have to work with, and to leverage it for greater abundance in an uncertain future. Because of how important I believe this information is, I've made it free to download for a limited time. So go to the education tab at AbundantEdge.com to download your copy today and start taking important steps towards a regenerative lifestyle, even in the face of a post-pandemic economy. The more people in communities that work together to create ecological abundance and resilient local economies, the better chance we have to create a new normal that includes the health and well-being of all life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode in this ongoing series on regenerative agriculture. Now, before we get started today, I want to give a quick shout out. Before starting this series, I've been in contact with a listener of the show named Nick, who has been incredibly generous and helpful in sending me links and information about other practitioners in the field that I should check out. And I've learned so much from the ideas that he sent me, so I just wanted to take the opportunity to say thanks to Nick for all of his help and guidance. Now, today's interview comes from one of the people that Nick pointed out to me and who I've been following and listening to ever since. John Kemp is a regenerative agriculture consultant, entrepreneur, speaker, teacher, and podcast host who is passionate about the potential of well-managed agricultural systems to reverse ecological degradation. He is also the author of the new book titled Quality Agriculture, where he highlights important interviews with prominent farmers and researchers on the cutting edge of ecological farming. He states that his personal mission is to have these regenerative models of agriculture management become the mainstream globally by the year 2040. Now in this interview, John speaks with me about the incredible growth of the regenerative and ecological farming practices in just the last few years and what is behind this trend. He also gives great insights about what he sees as a future where industrial and regenerative agriculture merge to leverage the best parts of both worlds rather than continuing to be at odds. We also cover the real drivers of change in the agricultural sector and how the new generation of young farmers are innovating and reshaping the future of this industry. I really like the straightforward and pragmatic approach that John takes to these important questions. 
Many voices calling for a change in agricultural practices that I've heard in the past do a great job of idealizing a world of healthy ecological interaction, but fall short when it comes to supporting evidence and case studies. But John does a great job about focusing on the realities of the world we currently have and how we can look to tangible examples of practices and methods that regenerate our damaged ecosystems while respecting the context of the globalized industry that farming is these days and what farmers themselves need to make their businesses work. I also highly recommend his show, The Regenerative Agriculture Podcast, for people who want to hear from scientists, researchers, and producers in the field who are making incredible advances for the ecological health of their land. I especially enjoyed a recent interview he did with Ray Archuleta and his short video series on the five core concepts of regenerative agriculture on the Advancing Regenerative Agriculture YouTube channel, both of which I've linked to in the show notes for this episode on the website. So now I'll hand things over to John Kemp. Hey, John, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. How are you doing? It's a beautiful day. Spring is arriving. Farmers are having fun, and uh, they're trying to move past memories of 2019. We're having a good time. Tell me a little bit about that. What is, uh, what is it about 2019 that they're trying to move past? Many farmers in North America had severe problems with wet soils continually for spring planting, a lot of delayed planting, flooding, and... That has carried over a bit into 2020. We had a lot, had a very wet winter, and there's a distinct possibility of much stronger disease pressure from soil-borne pathogens in the coming year mm. as a result. It's going to be interesting to see how that shapes up if this becomes a larger trend or if it's an anomaly. It's kind of hard to make predictions and plans like that with how strange the climate has been acting in the last handful of years. Well, one thing we can be confident of is that we will have increasing vagaries of the weather and increasing variability and inconsistency. Definitely, definitely. Well, so look, um, before we go into sort of the larger concept of regenerative farming and how it's starting to influence farming as an industry in general, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background and how you came to work in the agricultural sector? I've shared my story many times on different platforms, but the, the brief version is that I grew up on a family fruit and vegetable farm in Northeast Ohio in the snow belt south of Lake Erie. Very humid summers, very high disease and insect pressure, also very high rainfall. And when I was growing up, we were using lots of pesticides to control diseases and control insects. I was a licensed pesticide applicator when I was 16 years old. And my dad was actually the pesticide distributor for the local region. So we were the first people to try all the newest, latest and greatest pesticides and then make recommendations to our customers on how well they were working for us. That came to an end when we smacked our head into the brick wall in the early 2000s, 2002, 3, and 4. We had three consecutive years that we were not successful in managing various diseases and pests effectively with pesticides. It seemed the more of them that we used, the more of them that we needed to use, and the problems just became worse and the pressure became constantly more intense. Then in 2004, the third year of that three-year period, we began renting a field from a neighboring farm that bordered right up against one of our own fields that had been, this, this small field had been in a small dairy farm rotation, so corn, small grains, two years of alfalfa hay. Whereas the field that we had been farming for the prior decade had been in vegetables every year with a cover crop during the winter months, but then getting very intense pesticide applications during the summer. When we planted that field into cantaloupe, 
At harvest time, the soil that we had farmed with the intense pesticide applications for the last decade, 80% of the leaves were infected with powdery mildew. And on the new soil, the dairy farm rotation, there was no powdery mildew. So there was this very distinct contrast between these two fields, and that really caught my attention. I wanted to know what are the differences between these two plants. What allows one plant to be susceptible to powdery mildew when the next plant a meter away is susceptible? And was really asking that question that got me started down this pathway of regenerative agriculture and understanding that plants have immune systems the same way that we do. And when we support those immune systems with the proper nutrition, we can produce plants that are completely resistant to diseases and completely resistant to all insects and eliminate the need for pesticides. Yeah, that's a remarkable story, especially coming from such a, a further extreme now being such a vocal advocate of regenerative methods. And it seems like this is really starting to finally pick up steam, especially in about the last five years. I've started to see it in major news outlets and large industries even taking up the term and, and starting to promote it with some of their, their products. Do you think that regenerative the regenerative farming movement is different from other farming movements in the past like um you know the push towards using more chemicals or then going the other way with organic how does it kind of stack up to the trends that you've noticed in in agriculture since you started well i'm still a fairly young man so i'm not certain that i have the needed historical context over the last four or five decades to be able to answer your question well but in what I have observed with regenerative agriculture, we first started using that term to describe our work with growers, with professional growers, in 2011. And it was very fringe terminology that was not widely known or understood by mainstream producers up until, as, as you said, in the last four to five years. I would even say in the last two to three years, um, it has that, that language has shifted from being fringe language to uh, certainly entering the mainstream and certainly being familiar to, to most growers. So I think the there are many differences, of course, but if we compare it with the adoption of organic agriculture, which is the one somewhat similar comparison that we have, there are several very significant differences. And I think the really significant difference is at this point is that regenerative agriculture is really focused on regenerating soil health, regenerating plant health, and open to using whatever tools necessary and possible that can help deliver that. Organic agriculture has really, for uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, has limited itself by adopting a negative process certification. And I use those words very specifically and very carefully. What I mean by the phrase a negative process certification is they do nothing. Organic certification does nothing to certify the quality of the end product, the food or the grains or meats that are actually produced. Instead, they focus that a certain process was used and that excluded all of these materials. So by a negative process, I'm talking about an exclusion process that you didn't do this, you didn't do this. And the result is that you can be an organically certified farmer and do nothing. And that is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that, that is a good way of putting it. 
the regenerative farming approach uh, or message has been very different because it has focused on what are the things that you can do and need to do to regenerate soil using any tools and all tools at your disposal, including gradually transitioning away from using pesticides and transitioning away from using fertilizers. It does seem uh, very useful, the recognition of this being a process and that by simply taking away things, much as, uh, like you mentioned, uh, organic agriculture has been certified through that process of just reducing things, not necessarily meeting any particular standards other than what it is that they don't do. Regenerative uh, aspires to something tangible, much like, you know, I've been working in uh, ecosystem restoration for a long time, which is very different from setting a goal of sustainability, which is basically to continue on with uh, the bad practices so long as they do not make it uh, unable to continue to a certain point. And when you start to redefine the context by which you're aiming for, it opens up the possibility for for continual improvement and going beyond any, I guess, status or or definition that currently exists and continue to exceed it if more innovation is created in the process. I believe that in the context of agriculture, the term sustainable or sustainability is an absolute complete farce. We should have no desire to sustain where we are today. We should have no desire to sustain crops that constantly need to be dosed with pesticides just to survive. We should have no desire to sustain an agricultural system that is so reliant on tremendous natural gas and fossil fuel inputs for fertilization and so forth. We first need to have a conversation about a regenerative agriculture that does a specific set of things. For me, regenerative agriculture, the way that I think about it, it needs to deliver on a few goals. First, it needs to do, it needs to regenerate plant health so that we have complete disease and insect resistance and eliminate the need for pesticides. Second, it needs to regenerate the quality of food and public health to the degree that agriculture is responsible for public health and producing nutritious food that can enhance our own immune systems, we have a significant responsibility in that food has the capacity, nutritious food has the capacity to enhance our own immune systems and prevent us from becoming ill. This is something the medical system as it presently exists doesn't focus on and doesn't do very well. So we have a significant responsibility for public health. Third, Regenerative agriculture needs to regenerate soil health and ecosystem health so that we have pure water and strong water holding capacity in our soils, sequester carbon, stabilize climate, and so forth, all these ecological benefits that we know occur as a result of improving soil health and carbon sequestration. So those are the three significant regeneration pathways and goals that we need to achieve with regenerative agriculture and the result of all those this should not be a goal but a result will necessarily be improved profitability for the grower so it's only when we achieve a much higher plateau of performance this higher plateau of complete disease and insect resistance and optimal soil health only when we reach that point can we have a legitimate conversation about sustainability? We should have no desire to sustain where we are today. Yeah, 
sustainability only works once you've actually undone a lot of the damage and we're very far from that it's going to take a massive effort to restore the health of our ecosystems and the capacity for life really is is what we're getting at because that is what all of agriculture is dependent on so what all of our society is dependent on and the one of the questions that i often hear asked is can regenerative agriculture actually feed the world can it replace industrialized agriculture as we know it or is it more likely that the two might merge and within that is there a risk of corporatization of the regenerative concept or or label so uh start by certainly just talking about whether this is a feasible concept when implemented at a global scale you've asked several different questions yeah, yeah. first of all my personal mission and passion is to have regenerative agriculture become the status quo globally that is used by every farmer around the world by 2040. I believe this is a very realistic and achievable goal, and it necessarily means that it will be adopted by all of the quote-unquote corporate farmers around the world. That should be something we strive to achieve and not consider to be a negative. Um, so can regenerative agriculture feed the world? I've asked this question of many people that I have interviewed on my own podcast who are world leaders in this space, and I've done my own research. And the simply asking the question, the question itself is based on a false premise. And it is based on the idea that conventional agriculture, as it exists right now, the present mainstream that is dependent on genetically modified organisms, intense fertilizer applications, intense pesticide applications, is the only pathway to feeding the world. And when you look at the present situation as it actually exists at this moment in time, 2020, 2019, um, the UN FAO data indicates that 70% of the global food supply is produced by smallholder farmers. 30% of the population, 30% of the agriculture that is what is sometimes termed as subsistence agriculture. Uh, actually, I'm confusing that data a little bit. Let me clarify that statement. 70% of the global food supply is produced using 30% of the inputs, 30% of the fertilizer inputs and pesticide inputs and so forth from the small scale producers. Now, just pause and invert those numbers for a moment. That means that the conventional mainstream large scale agriculture that has this marketing mantra of needing to feed the world produces 30% of the global food supply using 70% of the inputs, meaning that it is the least sustainable and the least viable system that is presently being used and that it is being significantly outcompeted in terms of input efficiency by subsistence agriculture. So that's the one point that we need to make is that this is this mantra of needing to feed the world is purely a marketing mantra that is not based in actual fact. Secondly, when you look at regenerative agriculture, um, there are several reports that have been published of Paul Wagoner, among them starting all the way back in the 70s, and the simple conclusion is that regenerative agriculture can produce, if it were adopted on scale, on a global scale, can produce enough food to feed somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 to 15 billion people. 
And even today, at this moment in time, or even if we were to go to 9 billion people, um, we don't have a food shortage problem at this moment in history. We have a food distribution and a food waste problem. When you consider the hundreds of millions of acres of corn and soybeans that are produced in the American Midwest, and if you look at corn, maize as one example, 40% of U.S. corn production goes for ethanol. That's not food. And just imagine if those few million acres that are, or several dozen million acres that are currently being used for ethanol were converted into potatoes and rice and tomatoes. You could produce a food supply that is way beyond the requirements that we have right now. So, in my opinion, we don't have a food shortage or food production problem now, and we are unlikely to have one anytime in the near-term future. We simply have misaligned incentives. You achieve what you incentivize, and if you want to incentivize the production of high-quality food to feed people, you need to align the incentives in that direction, and that's the direction that producers will go because they need to be profitable. That really, that does a very good job of kind of redefining the question, like you said, and, and pointing out the fact that simply by asking it is to assume that the system that we have is doing the work that we that we assume in that question and, and put the the frame back into who is really producing the majority of the food in the world to say nothing of the the energy and the resources being consumed by one system or another. Do you think that through a like wider adoption, especially in the the larger industries that are pushing all of this with regenerative tactics, with regenerative methods, that there is a risk of sort of diluting the the brand or the integrity that is propelling regenerative agriculture as a movement at the moment? Certainly integrity of defining regenerative agriculture or the regenerative agriculture pathway is something that uh, there there is... There is certainly the pressure from large food businesses to co-opt that as a marketing terminology and greenwashing. So that is a legitimate concern and something that I think is worth talking about. Um, on the other hand, going back to the point that I made earlier, um, I, was, I was asked the question... I was asked a similar question on an interview a few years ago about Walmart entering into organics. And isn't this just horrible that we now have this, this large box store giant that now has organics on the shelf? And isn't this going to be bad for organics? There's something to me really wrong with that question. And... What is wrong with that question is the premise that we want to keep organic agriculture small. We want to keep organic agriculture local. I think having Walmart distribute organics is a positive because when that, that's a signal, that's an indicator of growing demand and growing adoption. So I'm not particularly... A fan, I, I've expressed my thoughts on organic certification earlier. I think it's certainly there's a lot of room for improvement in the process. But uh, be that as it may, if 
we can agree that organic agriculture in general has a positive influence on the quality of the ecosystem and a reduction of toxins in the food supply, which is really what it is intended to do, not to improve quality. If it delivers those objectives, then wouldn't it be a good thing to have the majority of agriculture adopt that? Wouldn't it be a good thing to have large-scale corporate farms become organically certified? Wouldn't it be a good thing to have Walmart and Costco distribute the majority of their food as organically certified? So we really have to, I believe, pause and question the place that we are coming from within that we would believe that it's a bad thing to have agri organic agriculture become large scale. To me, that's a win. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, but it really does come back to that integrity, I guess, way of maintaining standards throughout this. And do you see that as being at risk as it becomes more popular and, and becoming more mainstream? Or do you think that simply by its definition, certain aspects of it cannot be eroded? Well, regenerative agriculture, as I see it, is a pathway and not a destination. Uh, there certainly are destinations that can be defined. If we go back to the three goals that I identified of uh, producing disease and insect resistant crops, producing food as medicine that meets certain nutritional values and nutritional quality metrics, and that regenerates soil health and, and uh, improves carbon sequestration. Each of those things are things that can be defined, can be empirically measured in a laboratory and uh, or in the field in the case of the disease and insect resistance piece. So it is really, it is still too early in the adoption of regenerative agriculture, no standards have yet been defined. And the standards that are in the process of being defined are really pathway standards, not goal standards, to say that um, we are moving in the direction of improving organic matter and sequestering carbon. We're moving in the direction of reducing pesticide applications and fertilizer applications and so forth. And so there, it's, it's really, it's too early to have a conversation about the standards becoming diluted when no real standards yet exist. So I'm not able to give you the type of answer that you're looking for. No, no, that's fine. Um, so as this becomes more mainstream and, and continues to, to grow in acceptance and, and awareness, especially on the consumer side, do you see its wider acceptance starting to affect the curriculum in university agricultural programs? I think that's certainly happening, that it's happening already in a small way with some universities. But we have to remember that, uh, and I'm speaking in generalities here, there are many exceptions and often, I've spoken about this topic in the past and I've discovered that it's a very sensitive topic. Um, but in general, with some exceptions, but in general, academia is a decade or more behind the most innovative growers, the most innovative producers. And regenerative agriculture is at this moment certainly an innovation. So there are a few individuals within academia uh, and a few departments scattered across the country here in North America and U.S. and Canada that are being leaders in the space, but the majority are still significantly behind and have not adopted that yet and 
I can't predict exactly when they will, but I would anticipate it probably won't be right away. And so if those continue to lag behind, where do you see a lot of the innovations coming from? Is it directly the individual practitioners on the ground? Is it through coalitions of uh, like agricultural associations? Is it coming from the new generations of people who are getting into agriculture? I believe very much that you achieve what you incentivize. And if you want to understand why growers do certain things, we simply need to understand the existing incentives. So there are negative and positive incentives for the existing status quo, and there are negative and positive incentives for regenerative agriculture. And the better that we understand all of those incentives and the influence that they have, the better of an opportunity we have to make a significant difference. From my perspective today, a significant incentive, the biggest incentive, is simply profitability and economics. And our message, our marketing message in the work that we do at Advancing Eco Agriculture is very simple. We can help you make more money and be more profitable by managing nutrition differently than the way you're managing it right now. That's it. We, we, talk, we certainly talk about regenerative agriculture, and uh, that is something that we've become very much associated with. But many of the growers that we begin working with, the new leads, the new customers that call us, are large-scale commercial farms, commercial orchards, fruit and vegetable producers, who don't have a particular desire to become organic. They don't have a particular desire to be more regenerative. They have a desire to be more profitable, and they recognize that if they simply continue down the pathway they are on, they're going to continue to get constantly degrading results because that's what they've observed over the last decade or more. They recognize the need to do something different. They're exploring different options. So when we give them scientific explanations on how to improve crop quality, how to improve marketable yield to have less waste, and to produce crops that um, are paid premiums for quality, and we have a conversation around profitability, that is a significant motivator for change. So I'm not sure if I answered your question fully, but the I see that really what is going to drive change and is going to drive adoption, both for fruit and vegetable crops and for the broadacre crop farmers, is the desire for improved profitability and uh, economic performance. And that's one of the things that I've really liked in listening to some of your your talks and your webinars is kind of breaking it down to this is not about, you know, necessarily purely driven by wanting to do something for the environment or trying to reach a new market of people who are more environmentally conscious. At the end of the day, this breaks down to pure economic sense that by taking care of all of the life support systems in the ecology that these agriculture uh, as, as these practitioners are working with, there are tangible benefits in their pocketbooks, in their business models. And, you know, you can feel however you want about, you know, um, you know, the political side of this or the environmental side of it, but it's just good business sense at the end of the day. It has to be built on that foundation because all of these other benefits, look, farmers are under tremendous pressure. They have they are assuming an extremely large risk. One farmer, I, I heard one farmer describe his profession as, um, I borrow $800,000 every spring and bury it in the ground, 
and hope to get $850,000 back in the fall. And that's, <laughs> and there's a lot of uh, weather risk, climactic risk. There are many risks and often, uh, unfortunately, many farms are highly leveraged and they are extremely risk conscious and aware and they're very hesitant to try things that are new and unproven. And as a result of all of that risk and all that exposure, when we have conversations with growers about producing disease and insect resistance and reducing the need for pesticides, when we have conversations about uh, improving soil health and building soil organic matter um, and improving the quality of food and having a positive impact on public health, those are things that growers aspire to. They desire to do a good job and to produce high quality food. But they're not, those incentives are not enough to get them to change because of how much they have at risk. So if you really want to produce change in the system, you have to show them how they can be more profitable and how they can reduce their risks. Undoubtedly, I mean, this really plays out in just about any business model. And I like that you kind of dispelled the myth that most of the influence, especially to the farmers directly, is coming from consumers directly or from food trends. But can you talk about perhaps the impact that grocery giants have on the way that food is produced and packaged and all of the overheads and you know distribution models that really directly affect the producers as well? Well, this is not a topic that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and studying very deeply, but um, for those who have and the conversations that I've participated in looking with growers, what Growers, particularly in the, on the fruit and vegetable and nut production supply side, um, what consumers really are looking for is visual appeal. It has to look nice. And, uh, and followed by visual appeal, or similar to visual appeal, is flavor and aroma. And if you notice, neither flavor nor aroma nor visual appeal has any immediate and direct correlation to quality. Now, there are indirect correlations to quality for certain. Um, when you have higher or better flavor and better aroma, that is generally associated with higher levels of plant secondary metabolites and phenolic and aromatic compounds that can enhance our own immune systems. So that, that can be an improvement in quality. But the result is, or, or what ends up happening is that there are standards put in place for fruit size and fruit shape that don't necessarily reflect reality in the field. And one of our emphasis and focuses in working with farmers has been specifically on improving marketable yield. For some crops, that means producing smaller fruit. For other crops, that means producing larger fruit. For other crops, it means producing a triangular fruit instead of a round fruit. It's, it's really bizarre. Uh, when you stop to really think about it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, um, the demands or the asks, I should say, the asks that the retail supply chains have asked of growers have not included nutritional quality and they have not included really a lack of toxins in and on the food supply. And so with these kind of constantly changing goalposts, 
that it seems that a lot of producers have to aim for in what it is that they're doing. Does this kind of favor a regenerative approach, which perhaps is more um, varied and a little bit more resilient to the fluctuations of the market? Or is this kind of a handicap when you need to bring in either machinery for specific packaging needs or um, use sort of synthetic models in order to adapt to what the market is requiring? There might be a few exceptions that I can't think of any right now. I can't think of any scenarios right now where um, market demands are actually a handicap on regenerative farming systems. And perhaps there are some that I'm not thinking of. Um, though actually, there is one example that does come to mind now when I'm thinking about this for just a moment, and that is um, almond har- the, the way that nuts are harvested in California, for example, almond harvest. They typically shake the nuts off the tree, and they come through and sweep them up off the off the orchard floor and as a result of that they desire to have completely bare soil that is as flat and hard as a pad of concrete so those types of systems make it very difficult to those types of harvesting systems make it very difficult to incorporate cover crops and so forth not impossible but just more difficult so there certainly are some of those types of systems, as I think about it a little bit more, that have a negative Im- impact on the capacity to adopt regenerative methods. But by and large, there's not consumer demand or retail demand that limits the adoption of regenerative agriculture. So if those aren't sort of the major things holding it back, what would you say is the biggest hurdle to overcome in getting this implemented on a wide scale or or what pushback have you seen out in the field? I think the simply the biggest hurdle to overcome is lack of awareness and lack of knowledge. When when I say lack of awareness, uh, well let's focus on the lack of knowledge piece because I think um, awareness is certainly shifting. The lack of knowledge is that The existing status quo method of farming, often referred to as conventional, it's only been conventional, it's only been mainstream for 80 years or so, but um, which is fairly recent in a historical context, but it is the skill set that they know, that farmers know, that they're familiar with. They know how to go out and plant seeds in the ground and um, round up pretty seeds and come ap- come back through and spray it with an herbicide to kill the weeds. That is easy and simple, is not particularly management intensive, and it's something that there are many available advisors to coach them and support them and help them make the correct decisions. When you begin transitioning to regenerative agriculture, it requires a much deeper understanding of many different agronomy areas, entomology, and plant physiology, and soil biology, and the list kind of goes on and on. So to do it, and also it requires a much greater degree of management intensity, different types of weed control that have to be timed, sometimes down to a matter of within a 24 or 48 hour window, um, different types of cover crop management. So it, it is much more management intense and much more knowledge intense to do regenerative agriculture well and to do it profitably. And so I think the that is one significant barrier. And obviously that's something that we're working to resolve and many people are working to resolve. 
And there's another, there's also sociological barriers that uh, in, in the context of the present mainstream conventional agriculture is this is the way that it's always been done. This is the way that all my neighbors do it. And there are farmers who take a different pathway, who take a different approach, who are ridiculed within their local communities. And that is a significant factor. We, we can't, um, can't discount the sociological influences that are at play. Yeah, that's, that's tricky because that, that's uh, something that I've worked to overcome in a lot of the different jobs that I've had, both in natural building, permaculture and ecological design and, you know, a lot of other sectors is there is just a certain amount of sticking with what has been the norm for a while that is difficult to come out of for social reasons. And um, I've always found that dealing with ecosystems and and natural buildings and such are a lot easier and when it comes to working with people things get complicated pretty fast now let's let's focus a little bit on your book now and this is a, a fantastic collection titled quality agriculture and is a, a, a full of impactful interviews with leaders in agriculture especially in the united states what are some of the common themes and opinions that you see emerging from having done so many interviews at this point? <laughs> That's a very big question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I started the podcast, the Regenerative Agriculture podcast, to interview many of the mentors and leaders that I had discovered in these agronomic sciences that had incredible knowledge about <clears throat> how to manage diseases and how to manage insects and why they were present that was not mainstream knowledge that was this was incredible information that was often buried in the peer-reviewed literature and wasn't widely read wasn't widely known so the intent was really to interview these people and get them to share the wisdom and the knowledge that they had in a format that would be accessible to commercial growers the book quality agriculture came about as a realization that we have this incredible information from the podcast i've been able to interview these wise elders who amazing people and leaders who have said some of the most incredible things about disease and insect resistance and about our capacity to and, and methods and tools to regenerate agriculture and i realized that if we if i truly want to have a significant impact and change the direction that agriculture is going on a global scale then I also need to make that information available to the many people who don't listen to the podcast. So um, quality agriculture is the first and what will be eventually be a series of the interviews that I have had with people, with these leaders who describe, they describe why insects are attracted to certain plants and not to others, why they only feed on some plants and not others, and how you can manage nutrition differently to change that situation, to actually produce insect resistance. They describe how you can produce disease suppressive soils so that you don't have any soil borne pathogens. So the, the focus of the podcast and also of the book Quality Agriculture is really on the agronomy, the, the science and the principles of how do you put, how do you develop regenerative agriculture systems that are incredibly resilient and accomplish all the goals that we've spoken about. How do we actually put that into practice? So I've been very blessed and absolutely delighted with the information that they have shared and 
Um, many farmers have told me that this is their favorite and most valuable podcast that they've ever listened to. And I don't take credit for that as for me being the host. I sim- I believe it's simply the people who have been willing to share their wonderful knowledge. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely echo that. That's been my experience with, you know, speaking to so many people in this sector as well. And while this is part of a series focusing on regenerative agriculture, it's definitely, you know, it's the aggregate of so many great voices sharing their knowledge that adds value to this. And so and this is exactly why I asked these questions about sort of the the themes and the commonalities that you started to pick out from doing so many of these interviews, because it's something that I'm kind of always musing over for myself. And, and when you can see the trends, when you can see some of the, I guess, the averages from from all of this information, you can start to pick out these common truths that, you know, there's always going to be different applications and context and stuff when it comes to the specific site or the specific application that someone is working with. But there are patterns that can be sussed out from this that can apply to, to a lot more. And thinking of that, what are some of the characteristics that perhaps you've observed that successful ecological farmers share? To, uh, I'd like to go back to your previous question and, and, and expand on that one a little sure, bit more sure. as well and then on successful farmers. So the, the one theme that has emerged from all the people that I've interviewed, uh, which have been scientists and consultants and growers, farmers, commercial farmers as well, there is incredible hope and optimism. They all believe that it is possible to and, and are doing it. They don't just believe this to be a, a hypothetical future, but something that is present and existing in reality right now at this moment, mm-hmm. that regenerative agriculture can feed the global population a healthy diet of high-quality food without fertilizer applications and without toxins. That is an almost universal consensus among the people that I've interviewed. And that's now approaching a group of 80 of some of the top growers and scientists in the space here in North America. Not just in North America, but particularly uh, focused here. And so that is incredibly positive and hopeful and uplifting. I'm very excited by it to to have seen that theme emerge. Um, To answer your more recent question about the themes of how what defines really successful farm operations who are successful in making this transition. Um, I've actually, we've put together a webinar and also a podcast where we've identified a set of characteristics, skills and personality characteristics that define the most successful growers who consistently just ace it. They do, they perform, their farms perform extremely well. If there was one point that I had to pick out it would be that they focus on deeply understanding the crop quality characteristics that determine their pro- their crop's profitability. So what I mean by that, an, an example of that would be um, on wheat production, for example, the characteristics that determine profitability are obviously yield, but then secondly, also protein content, as well as protein quality. So then we think about, okay, what exactly defines yield? What produces a yield per acre or per hectare basis? And then we start thinking about the number of grains per seed head, the number of tillers that a plant produces. And so the most successful growers 
will identify three or four critical characteristics. That, uh, in the case of wheat, they might identify uh, tillering capacity. They might identify the number of grains per head and protein content. And they will seek to deeply understand what are the factors that influence those characteristics, nutritional factors, biological factors, weather conditions, and so forth. And they will manage those as closely and carefully as they can. And what I've really observed to be intriguing is that they refused to delegate this knowledge to someone else, mm. not to a consultant or an advisor or an agronomist, but they need, they want to personally know and understand. So they may delegate bookkeeping, they may delegate product applications and so forth, but this piece they do not delegate. Yeah, I can see that. And that actually does seem to be consistent with some of the observations I've made of the people that I've looked up to in a lot of these types of industries in which uh, a very keen understanding of the complexity of living systems is very important to success in whatever it is they're trying to achieve is that just the constant observation and the joy of understanding these things at a very intimate level even if you know there's not a lot of other people around to either share in the enthusiasm or the delight of that information and it comes from inside and it really drives those people to continue to observe and learn more and it's something that it it really seems to to bridge across various industries as well you're absolutely correct i very strongly agree with what you just described and one additional note our thought on that note is we have observed that many of the most successful farmers have a very strong heart connection or intuitive connection or gut connection or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. to their crops or to their livestock. And mm. in livestock production, this is considered to be somewhat normal that the, the best livestock producers are known. A, a dairy farmer, for example, may be able to walk out in the morning and observe a herd of dairy cows and say, uh, something is off with that cow. She's not feeling well. And there is zero visual that you can describe the difference. He can't describe why, what he's seeing or wh why he has this feeling. It's just a gut intuitive feeling that is usually correct. And the same also occurs with crop producers. Many times I've walked with farmers out into a block of trees or into a field and they'll say uh, this block just doesn't feel right I don't know what's wrong but this block doesn't feel right the most successful growers actually cultivate that intuitive empathic connection to their plants to their crops their livestock to their fields that's that's so genuine you know that's an expression of love and caring that I can't imagine can be taught that has to come from from a motivation inside of someone. And it must be very, very hard to teach it to someone who doesn't share that enthusiasm, too. I'm sure that many things can be taught, but there certainly is a degree of this. This skill has to come from desire. Mm. It has to come from within. Yeah, we need more people like that in, in all walks of life. Now, like you stated earlier, your mission is to help make ecological agricultural management the mainstream by 2040. Tell me a little bit about what your strategy is to make this happen and what people listening can 
do at home to help to further this goal? I've thought a lot about how to achieve this goal and tempted to be very deliberate in moving this pathway forward. And I've realized that one of the key pieces, if we want to have regenerative agriculture become the mainstream, is that we need to, to, to democratize information. And not just to democratize it and make it available and accessible to commercial growers here in North America, but really around the world. So that was really behind the efforts of the podcast, the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast. I've also now started a daily blog that you can find at johnkempf.com. And I've also we're also working on developing software tools to help growers make agronomic recommendations that fit their operation anywhere on the planet. Make it make this information equally accessible to someone who's growing a quarter acre of corn in Africa as someone who's growing 10,000 acres of corn in North Dakota. So democratizing and digitizing information and making it accessible to everyone is, I think, a very important pathway, uh, one of the pieces that we are focusing on. And then to your question of what can people do at home, um, I'm not familiar with who all of your audience is, but I would say there's a few pieces. First, definitely connect with your food supply and start growing food from or start buying food from producers who are actually seeking to make a difference in the world supporting them is certainly a lever for change but that's a common uh, common piece of advice the second i think the most important piece of advice that i would have for people is to actually start doing this your own on your own start growing your own food um, even if it's a few pots on the windowsill and growing some culinary herbs. Start growing some of your own food and really become connected with plants and become connected with the challenges that are really involved in agriculture. Yeah, I would definitely echo those those bits of advice. Um, if you're unable to produce a significant portion of your food, look for the best producer within your local area that you can support and collaborate with and there is so much that comes out of the experience of growing even a small amount of your own food just by connecting with the process and the seasons and, you know, the changes that different forms of life go through, I think connects people in a way that you can talk about this stuff all you want, but until you see it and, and really take part in the process, it, it, it's hard to connect to. And, and those are really good pieces of advice. Now, John, in this, uh, this effort to democratize the information, like you said, you've put out some incredible resources out there. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Can you tell our listeners where they can find all of your resources and how they can pick up your book? The best place to go will be johnkempf.com. Uh, that is kind of the central nexus point from where you can find our webinar series on YouTube. You can find the podcast. You can subscribe to the blog. And... Uh, Quality Agriculture, the, the first book in a, in a series of volumes, uh, will be released hopefully by the beginning of June, mid-June, and or so, sometime shortly thereafter. I'm not sure exactly when it will happen. So that will also be listed on the website. And yeah, that would be the place to find all the various things that I'm engaged with, also the various enterprises, advancing eco-agriculture and so forth that really help take this information and put it into practical application on farms. 
Marvelous. Well, for everybody listening, I highly recommend those resources. And John, it's been such a pleasure getting to talk to you and just kind of dig further into this process that you've helped to pioneer since since I found your resources. It's been it's been incredible to see that there's so much hope in this aspect of farming when a lot of people are focused on the critiques of it through, you know, pop culture documentaries and whether it's the meat industry or whatnot. This is, I think, a fantastic way of taking a look at the hope and the potential for where this can go if if we continue to you know, support the people who are advancing it in a very tangible way. So thank you so much for making the time. It's, it's been a real pleasure connecting with you. And I hope we can do this again in the future. Thank you, Oliver. Glad to be here. I'll add one thought. There is no shortage of knowledge in this space, simply a shortage of application. We already know what we need to do. Now we just need to go and do it. So that is your directive and ours is to go forward and do it. So thank you, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Beautifully said. All right, you take care. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.